Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Today, we're trying something new at Talking in the Library. First off, we've left the library. This is our first episode recorded in a dedicated podcast studio at Indie Hall, a co-working community space located in Philadelphia's Old City. What does this mean for you? Hopefully crisper audio and a lot less toggling with your volume. Second, I'm speaking with a different kind of library company scholar. Whereas previous episodes have focused on the remarkable work of our research fellows, today I'm speaking with a guest who works at the intersection of art, science, and scholarship. A self-professed artist with natural philosophy tendencies, Rebecca Kamen is a sculptor, lecturer, and honestly one of the most inquisitive people I've met. Rebecca has worked on collaborative projects at the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University, the Kavli Institute at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Rochester Institute of Technology, and the National Institutes of Health. Currently, Professor Kamen serves as an artist-in-residence in the Computational Neuroscience Initiative in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Pennsylvania. On July 16, 2019, the library company welcomed her into our reading room to discuss her most recent art project entitled Plot. Inspired by the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, Plot sheds new light on our relationship to the moon well before the advent of the camera. Thanks for talking with me, Rebecca. Thank you. So we're cheating a little bit here because we're in a different space. We don't have the physical objects in front of us as always. I'm going to ask you to tax your memory and also draw upon the digital facsimile that we have in front of us. And I'd like to start by thinking a little bit about the first one and what it looks like and what we're losing by not having the physical object in front of us. Well, what's so exciting to me about having an opportunity to look at the Hevelinus Cenographia is the fact that what you're looking at is someone who was a curious person who wanted to be able to look at the moon and reproduce it prior to the advent of the camera. I think in this day and age, a lot of times we forget that there was a whole world that happened prior to the advent of the camera. And scientists actually had to be artists prior to, to that discovery. And so as someone who not only is a sculptor, but who taught drawing, one of the things that really struck me about looking at this just magnificent drawing is the fact that you start seeing someone who really understands how to control and manipulate line to really hmm. express something that we call lightness and darkness. So how do you take something like a line and how do you modulate it in a way that it can express great depth and it can express great lightness? And so I was really struck by the fact that this was not an artist, but this was someone who observed something very keenly and was able to realize that by changing the weight of a pencil, or in this case, an engraved line, thicker line would obviously imply a sense of cast shadow, a thinner line would imply a sense of lightness, that on a flat surface, you can create a sense of great depth. When I used to teach drawing, I used to always tell my students, drawing is about magic, because it's all about mm. creating an illusion. Because on a flat paper, you're inviting people 
to believe that there is a three-dimensional object. What you have to understand, you look at someone like Hevelinus, who's looking at the moon through a telescope, how do I capture something that's so far away and is so complex on a flat piece of paper? And because this is an engraving, there's many, many steps. There's capturing it with drawing and then translating that onto a plate. And so it becomes this very complex process just to produce this one magnificent print. Now, what's very interesting with this particular book, which is considered to be one of the first atlases of the moon and complete atlases of the moon, is the fact that the first figure or the first drawing that he did was actually taken from what he was seeing with his eye through the telescope. With figure R, which we're looking at now, it's very modeled. So what he did was he actually enhanced. So it'd be like Photoshop, where if you didn't like something, you could enhance it using digital media. This is what people did by being a master draftsman. He was able to enhance this by just line quality. So you're seeing something that looks incredibly photographic and very modeled that's all just done with controlling line. Fantastic. So as we're looking at this image, in much the same way that anyone who's listening to this podcast goes to our podcast page, they can pull up the image. What are we missing out on that's different from when you saw this at the library company? Well, I want to go back to how I got to the library mm. company to begin with. My process of discovery for this project actually started at the Franklin Institute. And I was invited to come to the Franklin Institute because of my work with Scientific Special Collections to look at their Wright Brothers collection. The timing of this was really perfect because I was also invited to take part in this exhibition in Australia celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And I thought, how ironic, I've been invited to come to the Franklin Institute to witness their archive of the beginning of aeronautical flight. What really struck me as I was going through their collection were all these beautiful notations of Wilbur and Orville Wright of plotting. So what you see is that scientists have this compelling need to plot to get from point A to point B in terms of whatever field they're researching. So that really planted the seed. And what I started realizing is the fact that when you're plotting something, it's always about exploration and discovery, whether mm -hmm. it's the Wright brothers, whether it's me trying to figure out what I'm doing with this project or anyone. And so what happened was my research, which started online, took me to the Linda Hall Library in Kansas City to a wonderful exhibition curated by William Ashward, who was a curator there on the faces of the moon. Mm -hmm. I called up because I was so moved by this digital exhibition that I saw online, and I asked to get a copy of the catalog. So the woman who I spoke to said, oh, well, you must talk to the curator. And I said, oh, I didn't want to bother him. And next thing I know, I'm on the phone with this curator, and he's totally enchanted with what I'm proposing. He is actually the person, this is a long story short, that I really needed to see the Hevelinus book. I absolutely. And he said, you know what? I'm so excited for you to see it as an artist. I am not going to reveal anything to you until you actually hold the actual book in your hand. And because you live in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, there is a place that actually has an edition of it. 
the library company. And I thought, oh, wow, I've done a lot of research at the American Philosophical Society. I've never been to the library company. Once again, Ben Franklin dropping crumbs of possibility. <laughs> it seems like everywhere I go in Philadelphia. So anyway, I contacted Will Fenton <laughs> and he said, sure, come on down. I'll arrange for you to see the book. And it was really great because my main objective of seeing it was to find out from Bill Ashworth what the story was, what the backstory <laughs> was about this, because he was not going to reveal anything till I actually saw it in person. And it was really wonderful because I really wasn't prepared for just the actual beauty of seeing this other than digital. I mean, it was really beautiful. And I have spent a lot of my artist career looking at scientific special collections. I'm always in awe this age of natural philosophers when I think that these people were trained as scientists. But in order to be a scientist, to be able to capture your observation, you really needed to be able to draw it or paint it or express it in a way that could be shared with other people. You know, when you're looking mm -hmm. through a microscope, if you can't capture it in some way. Now, I just want to interject something because I think it's really interesting. When you take a photograph of something, so if I'm looking through a telescope and I'm photographing it, I'm capturing it very quickly. But when I'm drawing it, it enables me to process it mm -hmm. in a very, very different way. And I have had the privilege of looking at a lot of scientific notebooks and sketchbooks from people like Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who's the father of modern neuroscience, who has this incredible cache of 7,000 drawings. And it was looking at his drawings that made me realize that when you're drawing something, you're processing that information in a very different way. Mm -hmm. There's something about that process of looking and recording that I feel is really lost in this digital age, contemporary scientists. And I travel all over the world lecturing to scientists. And when I mention that to them, they're quite fascinated. You know, it's something they don't really think about. But I'm always brought back to the significance of that when I look at scientists who actually were artists, because that was the only way they could record what they were seeing. Hmm. One thing that feels sort of familiar about this is that every time I go to a collection and I'm feverishly trying to capture records, the easiest thing to do is to just take photos of them. But, you know, then what happens is you lose track of the photos and you don't actually engage them in the way that you would if you just transcribe what you're seeing. That is a really great way to get to know a source and to get to really closely understand the language and the sort of impetus behind it. And so it sounds like there's a little bit of an analog there between what you're doing and sort of translating scientific discovery through art and what some of our more traditional researchers at the library company are doing with sort of humanistic inquiry. What's interesting about that is, and what's exciting to me about this particular volume, is the fact that he shows us two different thought processes mm -hmm. of how he's viewing the moon. One is just rote, you know, what I'm seeing, I'm just recording, no shadows. But then I really want to enhance it because I think when people see the richness of these craters, they're going to be blown away. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting. I mean, even Galileo, who's really credited as being one of the first people to record the moon via looking at the telescope and actually drawing it. And Galileo was one of the first to realize, oh, my God, this is not a flat object. This has, you know, craters and it's very textural mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just seeing this white ball in the moon. 
So for me, it's really been just humbling to look at this whole range through the history of lunar exploration, how people have observed it and captured it. And mm-hmm. that's what I do as an artist. And that's what we do as human beings is we look at things and we record it in some way, whether if it's just in our mind or on our iPhones or whatever. Mm-hmm. For me, it became exhilarating going through all these books and having access to looking at these beautiful lunar maps. So I certainly want to return to the other image that you've selected. But before we do that, I'd like to sort of follow a thread that you've already introduced, which is this idea of process. And I want to think about a little bit how you get from being inspired by a particular record, whether it's based upon someone's encouragement or once you're holding it, you feel something really powerful in it. How do you go from that to your piece of sculpture, which is your mode of art? I think all objects, and this might sound a little unusual to people, have an inherent energy about it. I mean, when I'm in a scientific special collection, one of the things that I sense when I'm holding something in my hand is all the the, the chronology of all humanity that have held that book from the moment of its inception to the moment that it is in my hands. Many years ago, I was invited to do a lecture at the APS. And this person said that, you know, it went beyond just energy, that it went back to the paper that the book was written on. And in some cases, parchment. And that parchment has DNA in it of animals. I actually know some scientists that actually investigate that, which is very Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. But he said it also goes back to the tree the actual tree that created the paper that this book was created for. And it's so incredible when you think that it all goes back to nature. We return to nature in terms of the material that it's presented. It's very humbling when I think about that, just that continuum. Mm -hmm. That's why I love really examining old books. For certain people, I feel they really reveal their secrets if you listen to it. My practice is very different than most historians because most historians like scientists, who I also collaborate a lot with, are very myopic. My Mm -hmm. observation is grants are very research specific, where I'm more a natural philosopher. So my gift or my contribution is I pull threads from various different historical and scientific fields to create connections Mm -hmm. and to create a new lens for historians and scientists to view their work in a very different way. You have this moment of humility that's brought on by this aura of the object. Mm -hmm. Then at some point we kick you out of the reading room and you got to go home. And then you start thinking about what you're going to do with it. Is it something that varies every time you take on a different project or do you feel like there's a continuity across your sort of artistic process of going from that that impetus of historical or scientific discovery to your creative expression? I think it's a combination of things. I think because of just the breadth of what I look at, it enables me to start seeing connections. I'm actually dyslexic. One of the gifts of being dyslexic is you learn by making connections. I think that has served me well in terms of my career as an artist, because I have scientists that even say to me, how do you know all this stuff? You're not trained in this tradition. I haven't had science since high school. I'm very curious. I'm very inquisitive. And I hang out with a lot of brilliant people. And I'm able to start seeing things that connect, little threads that connect. At the moment, at Penn, in this project I'm working on now, I'm dealing with curiosity in the creative process in art and science. 
And what we're doing is it's a group of people that are coming from different academic disciplines and scientific areas to try to understand what goes on in the brain that makes us curious. And it's fascinating for me because I've always embraced everything that crosses my path. You could show me five different objects and I could probably have five or six different connections that I see how it relates. And this project, you know, it's really scary because someone calls you up or someone emails you in this case and says, we'd like for you to participate in this exhibition. And we'd like for you to create something that celebrates the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Well, I was fortunate in that I was born in the early 50s. And so for me, living before the age of computers, this was something that was so unbelievably thrilling and a possibility that was just a fantasy. I mean, who ever thought you could put a man on the moon or a woman or a person? And so to be able to see that from this vantage point was thrilling. So for me, what was exciting about thinking about this exhibition or my contribution to this exhibition was to do something that really celebrated the human spirit. And the human spirit is always about exploration and discovery and then sharing that discovery. So I wanted to come back to my early days. And actually, I grew up in Philadelphia. So for me, a lot of those seeds were planted at the Franklin Institute. I remember being in the planetarium in the 50s before it was all digitized, you know, when they had the actual real planetarium that looked like this big insect. And it just projected these stars. And it was like magic. I, I mean, in this day and age of digital, sometimes I feel that people get a little jaded, you know, because someone sees something unique and they say, oh, it's probably Photoshop. Imagine growing up at a time before computers, back when this beautiful engraving was done, and all you have is this long tube that's connecting you here on Earth to that incredible celestial body millions and millions of miles away, and you're one of the first to see it, and you're one of the first to see something unique about it, and then, of course, what you want to do is capture it. So for me, that's the always thrilling thing about seeing a lot of these books is not necessarily the subject matter, but trying to decipher the joy and excitement that sensing is coming from that particular artifact that I'm looking at. I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak a little bit more about your presentation at the library company, because I thought it was really fascinating, particularly that you managed to collaborate with a sound engineer, was it? A cymatic artist. A cymatic artist. And I'm certainly going to ask you to unpack that in a moment. <laughs> but this sound engineer, you hadn't met him in person before the presentation. And then you also, on top of the remote collaboration with this person, which was clearly very deep and substantive, you also had some kind of presentation on the other side of the world because it was also being projected, I believe, in Australia. Correct. So talk to me a little bit about how you manage that kind of wide-ranging collaboration. I am a huge collaborator. I just think that when you can get multiple points of view on a common goal, all things are possible. Tim Kripta is the graphic designer who I met. And actually, I have worked with Tim on several different projects. I never met him in person. <laughs> and what attracted me was his web presence. 
because I was working on a project where I wanted to use what's called cymatics. And cymatics actually started in the 17th century. It's a way of, it's the beginning of standing physics. And it's a way of taking sound waves and making them visible. Hmm. I had this idea for a project I wanted to do that involved taking a sound component I had for a sculpture installation and making it accessible for deaf and hard hearing people. So I thought what could be really interesting is if we could convert or translate the sound to a cymatic form, then deaf and hard of hearing people could get an experience of this component for this sculpture installation. So I went online and I found Tim's work and it was beautiful. I just, mm -hmm. I just was just so moved by it. And so I contacted him. And it turned out he went to University of the Arts. Mm -hmm. But now he lives in Denver. So mm -hmm. he had moved out of the area. And he was wonderful. And so we worked on that project. And then we worked on another project at the Levine's Children's Hospital. I was invited to be an artist in residence working with traumatic and non-traumatic brain injury patients. And so the idea was many of these patients, their voices have been altered because of their brain injury. And so we work with the sound studio at the hospital, and we recorded the patients saying their names along with their caregivers saying their names. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to show them that even though their voices might sound different because of their injury, when it's translated into a visualization and goes out into the universe, it's quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it was a wildly successful installation. I mean, the patients were really inspired and moved, and it really for me personally, showed what's possible, you know, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the transformational quality of healing. After working with Tim on that, I thought, you know what, I want to bring Tim in on this project. And so I contacted him and he was really excited about it. And so, you know, how do you communicate with someone who's halfway across the country? So, you know, we did it, we Skyped and mm -hmm. it was really effective and we were able to sort of talk about some different ideas. I really wanted to incorporate my research at the Wright Brothers collection. He thought it would really be great to put in the Kennedy speech. And it was really wonderful just watching it emerge and evolve into its own art form. And so what happened was the people in Australia thought because this would be a traveling exhibition that video would be the way to go. And I mm. really have very little video knowledge. I've worked on a couple of videos. And Tim was really excited because he's a graphic designer. He does a lot with multimedia. And so it worked out really well. He got really excited about working with different sounds from space and translating them into a cymatic format. I love the fact that cymatics really started and really was a beginning of standing wave physics. It dates actually back to the 1700s hmm. to a guy named Shalodny who took a metal plate covered it with thin sand, black sand, and took a resin violin bow and noticed that the more he stroked the bow, it started to change into these beautiful geometric patterns. And that really is the beginning of standing wave physics. And now we're harnessing it in the field of sight and sound with cymatics. It's fantastic. So you have this set of recordings that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So you have the audio. You have these images that are being created, these visualizations that you're going to work with. You have the video that you're sharing with the folks over in Australia. How do we get from those various forms, visual and audio, to your sculpture, which is actually tactile? 
Well, that brings me back to the next artist that we're discussing, which is the Naismith and Carpenter. And the book is called The Moon Considered as Planet, a World, and a Satellite. I did not know anything about this book, but my good buddy, Bill Ashworth, sort of directed me. And what's really fascinating about these scientists or astronomers is the fact that Naismith was actually trained as an engineer, and he created some type of steam engine and made so much money from this invention that he retired at 50. That retirement enabled him to really develop his passion, which is astronomy. His process, to me as an artist and an art educator, is really fascinating because his was a three-tiered process. The first process was looking through this enormous telescope that he built, and then he did these very beautiful drawings of what he was observing. And then what he did was, this is so incredible, is he made plaster casts based on these drawings. He illuminated these relief sculptures that were done in plaster based on what he was observing. And then he would create these, what are called, Woodbury-type plates. Hmm. And it was fascinating to me. He's creating this simulation of what he's seen. And so all of a sudden, I went ding, ding, ding. Oh, my God, he's doing exactly what I'm doing with these sculptures that I've created for this video, which is looking, observing what I'm understanding about this thing we call the moon. But in my case, I'm looking at how different people have observed the moon and capture that in each one of these sculptures. So I'm observing the astronomer's interpretation. That's exactly what Naismith did. This does raise a sort of more theoretical question that I'm mm -hmm. interested in, because you're already thinking about how different people's impressions of the moon, their representations, whether they're through something more textural or whether it's written in light in the case of a camera, those tell us a lot about the individuals who are looking at the moon, right? So I'm curious to know, what do those recordings tell us about the people that were recording them? From what I've read and just looking at these objects, what I find so humbling is there is this continuum of awe and wonder that we don't always understand. We're always in search of meaning. Mm -hmm. It was so exciting for me to feel like I've contributed to that continuum of observation and just sharing that observation through my work with others. It's interesting to me because at the beginning of this journey on this project, and you might be wondering why Australia might be interested in doing this Certainly. show. Yeah. yeah. Very little known fact, it's because of the Parks Observatory in Australia that we were able to see Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon because mm -hmm. of where the moon was in relationship to that time because of the hemisphere. It's because of the Parks Observatory. In the 21st century, people just assume, oh, yeah, you can transmit from anywhere in the universe. Back in 1968, I mean, having a color television was a really big deal. And I can remember I was actually a waitress at Howard Johnson's watching that in real time on a little black and white TV in the back. And I just had chills, mm -hmm. even seeing it on an itty bitty little black and white TV and the enormity of what that means. People, I think, have no idea the process of what was involved and not just those astronauts, but every single person that fashioned a nut or bolt that went into the lunar module or anything. I mean, it's really pretty incredible. 
And I think the, what was interesting about that mission is they, they sensed they could get them there. It's one thing to look through a telescope and look at the moon and record the moon. But it's another thing to look at that moon and have it be a catalyst for enormous discovery and enormous exploration. So why would you not want to celebrate that? Mm -hmm. you know? It was very thrilling to put my voice to this project. To think a little bit more about seeing, are people seeing different things in the moon over time? Because I'm just thinking about the two images that we've looked at. First, you have this sort of nicely plotted, very delimited moon in mm -hmm. the 17th century. Now we're on to something that feels like it really is trying to capture the depth of the crater as if this is really thinking about exploration in a much more concrete way. And then, of course, the most iconic image from the Apollo 11 journey was Bill Anders' iconic Earthrise, which isn't even about the moon. The moon is sort of the frame for an image of this very solitary blue marble that is Earth. So it seems to me that each one of those images is doing different work. It's telling us a little bit more about what is driving the people who are capturing those images or creating them. As someone who read across so many of these different depictions, do you see a transition or a set of undulations around how people read the moon, like the aspects of the moon that are most magnetic to them? Magnetic is a great term. What I came to realize on my journey of discovery with this project is that the moon is really a cultural icon. You see it in books. You see it in music. You just see it in clothing. I'm just amazed how people have taken something that we've all looked at. The moon, I think, has captured man's imagination since the beginning of time. The fact that it rises and falls, that it's very dynamic. And what's interesting about the Hell of Venus book is he's one of the first to really chronicle all the phases of the moon. And that was really beautiful to see. It's a beautiful, beautiful volume with such great detail. It speaks to us in so many different ways through so many different media, through people all around the world. When I travel, what's always amazing to me is I always look at the night sky anywhere in the world, even when I was in Australia. And no matter how far away I was, that became a guiding light. Mm. And I think the moon has always been that symbol of eternity, of power that it has over us. I mean, it controls the tides. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it really is the beginning of man trying to understand the order of the universe, mm. you know, and the calendar year. There's a nice parallel there between the humility that you instinctively feel looking up at the moon, this, this very powerful mm. celestial body, and the humility that you feel holding this historic object that you were talking about earlier. And that sort of brings me to my last very self-interested question. I'm very eager to see more people finding wonderful, unexpected things in our collections from different perspectives. For example, I didn't expect that I was going to have a conversation about Apollo 11 in the context of the library company. But I'm particularly interested in how we could get folks who aren't part of our little tribe of academic humanists excited about the library company. So how do we entice more artists, whether they're performance, visual, sculptural, to make a trip into the library company? Once people realize what you're the stewards of, 
I think that will generate a lot of enthusiasm. It's always interesting to me when I go into these academic settings. First, people are always looking at me a little suspicious. (laughs) Did you wash your hands? (laughs) Um, But then I think what happens is they realize that I take history, what these books have very seriously. When I lecture about, you know, working with scientific special collections, so I always talk about the fact that everyone views it with a different lens. Mm -hmm. And part of my contribution as an artist working with special collections isn't necessarily what a historian is going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. So what I get to provide is a new lens for those people to start thinking about what they're viewing. Mm -hmm. And actually, Will, that's how you and I got to meet because Mm -hmm. I've had this ongoing romance with the John Archibald Wheeler notebooks at the American Philosophical Society. And actually, Marty Levitt, who was librarian at the time, had seen a show I did on Mm -hmm. physics at the American Center for Physics in in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And he invited me to come down and look at these notebooks. And I thought, oh, who wants to go through all these science notebooks? But they were enchanting. And Mm -hmm. actually, I've had this ongoing relationship researching the Wheeler notebooks. What I'm finding is that his notebooks speak to me so deeply that even now he is informing. A big project I'm working on, on curiosity and the creative process. I just feel like every time I go there, he reveals some more secrets to me. Mm. And I think the important thing when you're dealing with scientific special collections, you have to always have an open mind. I just go in with an open mind and an open heart and then all things are possible. I love that. Well, thank you so much for making some time to chat with me. And we're going to have to find some more stuff for you to work with. I guess so. I'm looking forward to it. Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Join us next time when Michael Barsanti speaks with Sean Moore about slavery and abolition in the creation of the Library Company of Philadelphia.